Yo, welcome back to another episode of Stories Between Us. Yo, you know, we are the place where ordinary stories intersect in extraordinary ways so that one day a better story can be told. I'm Stu. And I'm Modi. And tonight, oh my God, we have, oh my goodness, y'all. The illustrious. The absolute amazing. Oh, Jesus. The, the, I, I feel like I need to make up a word. I know. Vociferous. I feel like I need to throw in a V word. Just something real extra and very intelligent. Yo, we are joined by Danielle Coke, a.k.a. Oh, happy Danny. Wow. Danielle. Danny. Danny. Y'all call her Danny. Danny. How you doing? I don't know how to feel about that intro. That was just, it just felt very regal. I'm honored. Thank yes. you for having me. Yes. <laughs> I'm very excited to be here. And it's so funny. I would use all of those same words to describe you because you are quite the intelligent person. So Boy, thank I be you. trying. I be trying out here. I be trying <laughs> out here. You know, and you know what's crazy? Like on the real though, like, you know, one of the, one of the, like, I'm, I'm kind of like narcissistic about this. Not, and we, it was crazy. It's like, we can actually lean into this joint first for real though. So like, like even like, so we, we, we're all on social media right now and we're all like doing like content work around justice, around, you know, art and social media and activism and imagination. But then also, you know, like I was recently reading this piece in the Boston Review entitled The Literature of White Liberalism. I don't mm. know if y'all seen that joint, uh, but I've been sitting with that joint for a little minute. And the author in that piece argues that so much of our conversations around race and so much of our work around race and justice centers both white education and white comfort and not oh. to mention, not to mention white progress. <laughs> Mm. So, so golly, how are we, oh Jesus, how are we navigating, like, yes, how are we navigating, like, that relationship between, like, dismantling white supremacy and, like, loving us, like, like, yo, like, oh my goodness, how do we do that, like, what what are y'all feeling about that? You know, that's actually a really good question, because- silence, silence! You know, in 2021, at the I had a list of things that I'm really leaning to, into as a person on social media, as a brand, and also like a ministry, all the things. At the top of the list is how can I educate without centering whiteness on my platform? And it's a hard balance when, when I first started all of this, I to be honest, started drawing these justice-related illustrations because I had white friends who around Black History Month, I felt didn't understand what was going on. And so for myself, I was like, okay, I'm going to go ahead and make these illustrations to kind of speak to that. And then it's such a delicate balance between I want to educate and I want to put this information out here to make this topic more digestible and easy to understand. But at the same time, I'm a person, not a resource. There's a point to all of this that's not just having cute, shareable graphics to go around social media, but we want to get to the, you know, the nitty gritty of the work and have people actually take away from 
this art and have action steps. And so for me specifically, I've been definitely planning on how I'm going to use more of my platform to center Black liberation and all the different ways I want to explore that. And I've got many, I've got many ideas, but mm. it surely is a we, struggle. We, hey, hey, we ain't going to share them right now. We're going we're gonna to let you release your own content. Yeah, because good. I need to take my time. <laughs> I need to take my time. <laughs> yes. So in in regards to like activism and creating, you know, as you said, cute graphics for people to be able to share, have you come to think about your social media work and people who say that you can't be an activist behind the screen in regards to your work, um, creating these graphics and really using your media as a way of reflection, imagination and choice? How do you, how do you, I guess, like navigate through the topics that, that you'll do? Yeah, that's a really good question. A couple of really good questions in there. So when it comes to activism, I know that art and activism are often pitted against each other. I say this all the time. People say that art is about feeling and evoking emotion and activism is about action and doing something. And the two don't coincide, but what I discovered as I started this and as I did more research into the idea of artivism, art and activism combined, is that there's such power in using emotion to invoke action. When you put them both together, that's a very powerful force. And so I would definitely say that activism doesn't stop at art. Uh, I think it's a helpful vehicle to get information, important information out there in a digestible, easy to understand way. But also even I did a I love doing word studies, uh, both when it comes to theology and when it comes to like the everyday words. Uh, And for me, when I looked into the word activism, it talked about how it's the action of using vigorous campaigning to bring about political or social change. And Mm. the, the word vigorous really stood out to me because activism isn't a play thing. You know, it's Mm. not just a, "Mm, I feel like posting this today. It's like, I am vigorously in Mm. pursuit of the good in this area. Mm. And I Mm. believe that if my work encapsulates that idea, then that's activism. And Mm. I'm proud of that. Mm. Wow. That's so real. And I just looked up like vigorous. Let me give you the (laughs) definition, y'all the definition real quick. First of all, it's an adjective. Now I'm a writer. We, we writers, we're all writers. So don't ask me how to, what is an adjective? Cause I ain't trying to make any of us look bad, but I do think it is a word describing something, you know, right? (laughs) describing something. And so like it, so, so like the definitions are robust healthy, strong, full of energy, characterized by physical strength, effort, forceful, energy. Like, as I think about those words and I think about like, you know, I was reading this Alice Walker quote and she said, you know, the artist, the artist, you know, is the voice of the people. So it's almost as if like, you know, to do art and to do artwork and to bring art to life in our own lives is to bridge our imagination of what we believe to be possible for us and to bridge that joint with the real embodied experience of real alive people and how to bring art and their lives in such a way that's full of health and full of energy. 
and full of life. Because oftentimes the reality is this, like art makes beautiful in some sense, the lives of those the world has made ugly. Mm-hmm. Oh God, I might need to write, I need to write that down. You know, <laughs> oh Jesus. Art makes beautiful the lives of those that the world has made ugly. And so like, in some sense, I think about like, you know, in some sense, Danny, how do you think about your art and you as an artist being the voice of the people, of of your family? Give, in some sense, even, you know, we usually start this joint like with with like you know, our, our podcast with, hey, like, yo, what what is it in your story and in your family life and things that happen that help you understand who you are? And I'm so interested in that. Like, what is the story of Danny and the resources and the life of the people that you come from that has made you an artist today? How are you the, what is the voice of the people that's within you? Help us like, like really get inside that. This is a very beautiful question, very weighted question, but also I believe that my answer is not going to be as deep as you might want it to be, but that's that's okay. All good. Because there's meaning in it still. Uh, So I come from a small family. It's the four of us. We're very close, very tight. My mom and my dad and my younger brother. And my dad is a pastor. So growing up, he was a pastor of our own church in New York where I lived. And we moved down to Georgia in 2003 and I've been here ever since. And so I know nothing but the small town Georgia life. And even growing up in predominantly white spaces, I always was aware of the dynamic of race and how it played into the way I live my everyday life. But it was always something that I had conversations about in private. It was never anything that I would, you know, I wasn't always just boisterously loud about it. And as we grew up here in Georgia, my dad shifted from being a pastor to being, you know, still part of the pastoral staff at the church that we grew up in here in Georgia. I found myself growing up in a very legalistic, toxic uh, Christian environment that was not Christianity as I know it today, but more of like a Mm. false doctrine type of situation Mm. where uh, it was just not, it was the opposite of what Christ Mm -hmm. intended. And so I spent years in high school and then college questioning what it was that I was surrounded by, like all these rules. I just was so confused at how it related to the way Christ actually wanted me to live. And so there's a point to all this, I promise. But Oh, we good. We tracking. Oh, you're good. good. You're tracking. Okay, cool. Sometimes I feel like I wander and I just be talking. Okay. But I got to college and I sat, I was sitting with my, with my Bible and I, I was like, God, there has got to be more to this than what I have experienced because something, this just doesn't feel full. I, I'm not experiencing the fullness of who you are in this moment. So I'm talking to God and I'm like, I'm gonna open this Bible up and I'm gonna just try to figure this out with your help on my own. And so I, I flipped open to Romans and I was just introduced to grace and mercy and just all of the beauty of what Christianity is to me today. But in that journey of discovering that, I also had to leave behind all that was untrue and unlearn so much. And in that journey of unlearning, I fell in love with the beauty of truth and what love actually meant in its fullness. 
And so as I experience love in its fullness, how love is God and, and how we're called to love our neighbors the way we love ourselves, I was just like awakened to the idea mm. of love in a way that I had mm. never seen it before. I was like, mm. wow. So this love your neighbor thing isn't just some passive, cute statement, but it's a call. It's a lifestyle and it's something that I'm empowered to do daily. And so that just kind of propelled me into really wanting to love my neighbor in its fullest sense. And that naturally led me to the pursuit of justice with my whole life, my whole life. And so even as I was studying things in college, I would still at the same time be vocal about uh, racial injustice, actively seeking ways to make a change in my own life. And when I stumbled across art um, in a graphic design, digital illustration type of sense, it was merely an outflow of all the conversations and all the work that I had already been doing in my own life. And even growing up, being creative, doing little things with my hands, designing business cards to mow people's lawns. Like I had always been trying to like make things and do things. And so what I think happened in 2020 was everything, all the passions and the skills and the talents that I already had just kind of came together in a very unique way. It gave me an opportunity to walk out purpose in a way that I hadn't before, but in a way that life had prepared me to do so. So like the understanding of love and its fullness, my passion for creativity and wanting to see justice and um, honestly, as cliche as it might sound, make the world a better place. It all came together in what I'm doing now, drawing. Yeah, it's yeah. it's not cliche at all. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No. Unfortunately, I think it's not cliche enough. But mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that's a long story. But that's yeah, how I got no. here. <laughs> hey, we live for long stories. Um. <laughs> You know, I really resonate with your story as far as like art and making you think of things in a different way. Um, And with your story of Christianity, like being able to feel as full with love as you expect it to be. Mm -hmm. And um, I was not born and raised a Christian. This is an offbeat question. Do you mind sharing where you're from in Georgia, small town? Yeah, Grayson, Grayson, Georgia. So it's in Gwinnett County. I mean, you could drive through it in three minutes. Yeah. I Very grew up small. in um I grew up in Eufaula, Alabama, Georgetown, Georgia. It's like right on the border of Georgetown and Alabama. So my mom's house was in Georgia, but I went to school in Alabama. And um I completely resonate with that because my only church experience was that of a small Southern Baptist church. Mm-hmm. And the first church I went to, um, I did not feel that I guess, fullness that, that you expected. And nor did I feel it in the religion that I was born and raised to be in mm-hmm. a Hindu. And, um, I found art when I was actually through one of my really good friends, Ariel, she introduced me to Jean-Michel Basquiat. And, um, I actually just kind of fell in love with him and art and abstract art specifically since. And, um, your story reminds me of something that I just posted. Actually, um, I just made my art debut, which, by the way, was amazing. Which was amazing. Which was amazing. Let me find out. Hey, we yeah, just I, we me and Modi just had this conversation. I'm like, yo, I've been telling her for weeks, like, yo, like you got, hey, you an artist, and and she's a writer, writer too. A writer. Like, 
I'm um, trying to tell you. Yeah, I so I'm trying to I'm trying to get into I'm trying to what do you call it? like find find my foot in. That's what my stepdad yeah. would say. I'm trying to find my foot in. And um I posted my first like ever public art piece I posted the other day and um oh, the wow. background for that was the following. Ever since I was born, I've been taught to pray how to speak, whom to address, what songs to sing, how it should feel, how to hold my hands to clear my head, how to kneel, and how to have unquestioning faith. Through the same life, I had to unlearn all the aforementioned and learn how to have a running conversation with God none of us have faced. I realized that in the hardest of moments, no matter how small or grand the event, thinking that I had to be a certain way to pray made my faith waver. If I'm loved the way that I feel, why must I prepare to speak? Do I have to pull my car over and put my hands together? Why can't God hear me like this now? I hardly pray. I hardly put my hands together. I never kneel. Sometimes I sit. Sometimes I yell. Sometimes I cry. Sometimes no words leaves my lips. And in this painting, I gave the backstory of like having being blessed to have chosen family in this world. And one of them is my dear sister, Aviana. And we talk all the time, but there is a pause in our conversation one day. And she said, I just want to sit and talk to God for a bit. And that's what in inspired this last painting of um, just like two silhouettes. So, wow. yeah, I completely completely understand wow. you completely understand actually completely yeah wow that's beautiful and it's it's in it's just so interesting like that journey of deconstructing how mm. you're you're able to really get to the bottom of how what is love and mm -hmm. how have I been created to love and what does that mean for me and all those other things that I was taught and all those other things that I thought love was supposed to be when all that falls away, it's where you really find like the essence of what it truly is. That is yeah. stunning. I'm going to DM me that. Mm. Hey, <laughs> Send me <no>. that. <laughs> Yo, and you know, and you know, what's, what's, what's so crazy is like, so like last semester, um, and even this semester in class, um, but particularly last semester, I had, uh, I had to do a lot of work in like, you know, the spiritual lives of young people. And for those who don't know, I'm in seminary. I don't even think I, I, I clarified this for our podcast listeners. So I'm at Emory yeah. University. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm in seminary. So, wow. Uh, yeah. but, but what's so interesting, you know, one of the things I found out is that, you know, there's this, this, this kind of thing, you know, about like the lives of young people, especially as we talking about faith and church attendance and the statistics that come out is to say that like young, there's this, there's this kind of saying young people are leaving the mm -hmm. church. Church. They're, they're like, church, people yeah. are saying like young people are leaving the church. But the reality is this, it's not that like, one, one of the things I found out and, and even in my own story, like I was raised like hella Pentecostal. When I oh, say Pentecostal, absolutely. I'm talking about I'm not a shot of Boda. Like period, like, so I, yes. Like period. Like no dress. Like like no makeup. No, no jewelry. No, no makeup. No, no pants. jewelry. No pants. No movies. No no nothing. Like yes. I, and, and and now you know that I've gotten older and like you know the more people 
who've gotten out and more young people that have gotten out and, and came back and like, you know, they, they started progressing and changing and things. And yeah. so instead of, instead of women, you know, sitting down on the third or fifth row and uh, or whatnot, women can actually be on the side and sit and, and talk at the podium. They can't mm-hmm. go to the pulpit yet and yeah. preach, but at least they in the podium. And so it's so crazy. But like, you know, one of the things I, I started thinking about is that for us young people, like it's not that we have we have left churches, yes, church as a institutional reality, yes, yes. But young people, we have not left the faith. We have not left whatever faith has given us meaning. The stories that give us meaning, the the, the stories that that allow us to understand liberation and love and justice and community and belonging and growing up and getting better and finding meaning in. And one another and not giving up on God and not giving up on life and what can be possible for us. You know, we're not giving up on faith, but, 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 but skirt. one of the things we have given up on though, is that we have given up on the ways that our faith has been used to oppress others. We have not given up on the Bible. We are reading our Bibles. We like you, you just open up a young person who grew up in church. Uh, you open up their phone. They got that little Brown app that say Bible, uh, with the cross on it, we got it. We we got the app. We've not given up on the Bible, but we have given up on the way that the Bible has been used to marginalize others. And we have not given up on Jesus. We've not given up on this meaning of, you know, dead things can come to life. Things oppressive can be liberated. Things that are ugly can be made beautiful. This story of good news for humanity. We've not given up on Jesus, but we have given up on this idea of Jesus being a blue-eyed white Republican from Georgia uh, who goes to the country club and wear red hats with white letters on it, trying to dream of a country that oppressed and killed us. We've given up on that type of faith. And and in some sense, we, and and that's, that's the joint about art, Danny, like, like what, what, as I think about the, the the relationship between faith and art, I'm always, you know, thinking about this, this one word, like this one word. And I want to drop this one word since you love words. This, uh, <laughs> Kiese Lehman, uh, uh, one of my favorite writers, big bruh, love that dude, wrote a book called Heavy, just came out with that amazing collection of essays, how to kill yourself slowly and others, how to kill yourself and others slowly in America. Uh, brilliant, brilliant dude. He says that the heart of his writing is one word, and that word is revision. Mm. Revision. Like, if we think about our faith stories and our life stories, it is a process of revision. So, Danny, I'm so interested, and even Modi, and we can talk about this. Like, in your own art, and in our faith stories, and in our life, and even in our country, what role does revision play and what role should revision play in going forward? Um, Well, you know, we think of immediately when I think of the word revision in terms of our country, I think of revisionist history. And um, I think largely that's one thing that needs to be uh, not only addressed, which it has been, but, you know, fixed and in a way revised, like revisionist history needs to be revised. (laughs) But yeah, but the, and I think, I think the same, the same story goes with, goes with the faith for as long as I've known, um, every single morning I could wake up at whatever time between the hours of 5am to about eight ish am, 
I could wake up in my childhood and walk out to the kitchen and see my stepfather on the dining table with his daily bread and his Bible open. And that's a part of his faith that will never be revised, right? That's a part of his faith Mm. that will never change. And there are certain parts of my faith that also, you know, will never be revised. But I think the interesting part about young people being in church is that um, it's kind of impossible to ask a young person to not revise. It's kind of like, it's kind of, it's kind of impossible for a child to walk into a place and be like, yeah, this seems right. I like I have I have nothing to fix here. This seems this seems all right. <laughs> and um I think I think the same thing happened for us and our generation in the church. It's not just like you said, Dante, it's not that we're leaving church, but we need to revise it for what it for for what it fits to us. In in my head, it makes no sense that that Joel Osteen owns 17 uh, 17 houses and 35 cars and two private jets. But the, but the young lady on the, on the first row is struggling to give her kids a sandwich at night. And, um, that is just not a part of the faith that I agree with going, going to a church that, uh, perpetuates an idea of capitalism and greed and, um, Mm. manipulation is a part of the of the Christian faith that I felt when I first joined needed revision. And mm. the same with my art. Every time I look at it, um, <laughs> my friends will be the first one to tell you I don't like any of my art. I think maybe, maybe I like one piece of mine. And that's the only one that's hanging up in my house. And But to me, every other piece feels like it could be revised. And I'm not sure if that's the most beautiful part of art in my life or if that's the most daunting. I'm not sure if it's the most daunting because I feel like I'm never finished, but I know it's beautiful because this it because it was a stopping point. You know what I mean? Like it was a point in my life where I felt like, okay, this piece is done. So I can't really expect myself to push any further for revision when nothing seems to speak to me. So in a sense, I kind of try to apply that in my, in my personal life. Um, my, my nickname for my family, I can't believe I'm telling everybody this. Oh my gosh. My, (laughs) my nickname for my family is Bobby. In and that literally like she she who does not speak that's the meaning and Mm. when I was younger I did not speak a lot really unless I really needed to say something and I think the same thing happens now I'm usually I know it doesn't seem like it on the the podcast but usually I'm like a very like feel out type of person like I just want to feel this out for a bit before I say something and um in activism, in art, in my daily life, I've kind of stepped away from, I just want to feel this out a bit. It's really not taken me any time 
to jump into something that I'm passionate about. And also in the same way, it's not taken me that much time to figure out if something that I have done or put my hands on needs revision. So Mm. yeah, I guess in a very roundabout way, revision in my life is um, ever going. And I am hopeful that it won't stop. Does that make sense? Like I'm hopeful that it will in certain aspects, but I'm also hopeful that, that it won't like, I'm hopeful that I won't stop looking for ways to love people the way Mm. that they need to be loved. I like that a lot. And as, as you were talking, the more that I was thinking about the concept of revision, I, I like to tell people that when I create, I'm not the type to make something out of nothing. And I know that might be surprising for some to hear, but I just don't feel like that's my role with the art that I do. First of all, it took me a long time to even call myself an artist. I was like, y'all, I'm just writing. Mm. I'm just, these are doodles. But then I started to see why, why it was art. Um, but for me, it was taking something that already exists and making something out of it and in that that's revision but also I found that what triggered me to create and I know this is a question that you had asked me earlier Dante about like how do I choose a topic or what brings me to make something it's when I hear that something is going on in the world I always tell people when they ask me about my process I'm always listening for two things I'm listening to what's happening in the world around me And then I'm listening, more importantly, to how people are discussing amongst themselves what's happening. How are people processing Mm. within their own communities what's going on? Because I don't want to make art that's reactionary. I want to make art that's revolutionary in the sense of I'm not reacting to what's happening. I'm wanting to take what's happening and what you're talking about and put together a resource that helps you continue, helps you to learn, helps you to grow, helps you to change your perspective on something, which, which is what leads to the change in your life. Mm. And so for me, for example, people were talking about, especially in Christian circles, it was said, you know, we're getting too caught up in justice in this worldly sense. You guys are not heavenly minded enough. And it reminded me of this really old quote about how it used to be said, don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. And I heard this and I said, that don't even sound right to me because are you discouraging me from being heavenly minded when it's a heavenly mind that leads you to be earthly good in the first place? Let's revise. Mm. Let's revise. Let's take that original statement. How about we be so heavenly minded that we can't help but be earthly good? And it's that kind of revision that leads to the heart and mind change that says, you know what? I might actually do this differently now because this makes sense. And that's what I'm hoping the art that I create does for people. They see it. They're like, you know what? Let's do this differently. And I love that art can do that for people. So Danny, what words do you need to get out right now? What do you, what's, what's, what's in you? What's in you that just, that just needs to like in this moment, what do you just need to yell? Well, I'm thinking as of right now, most recently, what I've gotten off my chest, I think partially, but I still want to yell, is the whole idea about now we're in a season where we can truly have unity. 
Mm. We're in a season mm. where we can finally come together. We can <laughs> kumbaya with each other and just love. Mm. And we're good. And oh, there's so many things I could say, but one thing that I started to tackle with a recent post was the whole concept of the phrase, love your neighbor, how, we, how mm. it's used to pacify, how it's used to kind of calm you and cover you and say, just love, just love when people don't step back and even analyze the power behind a statement in that you're, you're actually calling me to God love. You're calling me to the most radical kind of love that is actually challenging you to truth. It's challenging you to accountability. It's mm. requiring of you that you trust, you persevere, you hope, and you don't coddle evil. And so something that is really burning in me that I, I want to keep talking about, even if it's just within my circles, is the whole idea that we've heard it over and over. There's no unity without accountability. Mm -hmm. And love, there's no love without truth. And I really want to continue leaning into those ideas because I believe that that's where we truly find the kind of peace that people are longing for. Mm. Yo, we could like, really, we could literally, and now Danny, thank you for sharing that. That's so good. Because like the, the, the challenge that we're facing right now, which um, one of my professors, she posed this question. She was like, you know, what does it mean to do to, to do theological work? What does it mean to be religious? What does it mean to find meaning in your faith in the Trump presidency when you have people who are abusing reality, abusing faith, this, this in some sense, dismissing reality, you know, and, and hating others and doing it not simply with their mouths and with their with their weapons, but they're doing it through policy and violence and, and violent policies and violent ideology. But then she posed the flip side question. Because what does it mean to do that work right now in the time of Biden? Mm. When it's like, when it's like things are seemingly getting better, but you're still in an empire. You're still in a place where yes. those, <laughs> them people, them White supremacy did not leave on Air Force One when Donald Trump left the White House. It did not leave. I don't know why I yelled that just now. Because you felt it. It. Did, it did not leave. Because they, because they and, didn't leave. Yes, that's why they should have, but they didn't. They didn't. They should have, but it didn't. And like, like I, I was really thinking about this, Danny, and I'm so glad you're talking about this because this is like a joint, like so many of us are talking about. And the crazy part is, now let's be honest, the crazy part is right now is you have all of these Christian influencers. Oh, who no. Are in, hey, can I be real? Can I be honest? <laughs> be let's honest. be honest. Let's be honest real quick. You got these white and, 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 and black who are adjacent to white evangelicalism, Christian influencers right now who are centering white people and white progress, who are saying that we need to be unified who have not incurred any of the trauma or the injury of what it means to be on the bad side of both policies and practices and ideology that harm your body and your mind. And so now they want to say, okay, yo, like let's be unified with people who never meant for you to be equal or free or loved. And so for me, yo, it's incredibly, let me say this, it is absolutely incredibly dishonest 
and disrespectful and unloving to ask people who have been harmed in the society to compromise with people who do not love them, to compromise with people who deny their equality, to compromise with people who deny their full humanity, to compromise with people who support people and policies that continue to scream at them that your life does not matter. And like, when I think about Jesus, like when I think about Jesus, Jesus does not just want us to be unified. Jesus wants us to be free and equal. And so for those who use Christian faith as a way to, in some sense, diminish the rage of people who have been hurt and oppressed, not only are presenting an unbiblical type of faith, but they are presenting a faith that is abusive and carries the white supremacist logic out to its end which is silence and suppression. Wow. I agree though. I will, I will say for the, like, it's been, it's been all of what, 32 hours. You know what I mean? 32 hours. And people are out here like acting, acting like we just didn't go through what we went through for the past four years. Excuse me. You cannot, you cannot ask me to sweep this under the rug. You cannot, Mm. you cannot ask me to forget and you cannot pacify or minimize my feelings just by telling me like, oh, but Biden's in now. Yeah. Well, you know who also is in that Trump flag that was in my corner of, of my driveway. That flag's okay. not there no more, but that family is still there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Girl, you on the something. That mm-hmm. flag is not there no more, but that family is still there. The way that they feel wow. is still there. Wow. Them talking about me is not going to be out right now. Now it's just going to exactly. be quiet. And, yes. you know... Okay, yeah. this 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 might be this might be a little off the wall, but this is probably because I was I was raised in the South. I would rather know who my enemies are than pretend than than pretend like they're my friends. I mm. personally I enjoyed the hats. I enjoyed the flags mm. because it let me know when now I feel like now I feel like I'm in more danger than I was before, before I could like actively avoid it. You know what I mean? And BJ, I remember one time when I was very young, BJ is my stepfather. BJ one time when I was very young, um, we had to, we were driving somewhere and he just had to stop for gas. And I was like, Oh, BJ is a gas station right there. This is before I knew everything that I knew. And BJ was like, nah, we can't stop there. Do you see the flag in the window? Right. So I would, I'd much rather keep driving than be stopped and have to confront a devil that is not mine to confront, mm-hmm. to confront a demon that, that has not called me, you know what I mean? And although that, that may seem like cowardly to some for me, it's not, for me, it's not a question of cowardly. Like if I want, again, if I wanted to go into the store, I would, if I wanted to confront these people, I would. But the fact is, is that I would know to confront them. And I think my issue is not knowing now. That does make sense. Especially when you think of a lot of us would probably like in the last four years to a dark season, you know, mm-hmm. and, and many people would probably see this new, this next four years as, light 
the mm-hmm. light is on and we're able to easily shine the light on a whole bunch of different injustices. But the thing is, when, when lights come on, you know, you know, like how, how bugs do, they, they'll mm-hmm. scatter. They scatter. <laughs> they scatter and they hide. Yep. And, I'm, and then I'm thinking they come a, right back out. Yeah, I'm thinking about the, like bugs as like, you know, mm. like hate and yes. like all of these secret feelings that people have or weren't so secret before, but violence, extremism, like people who identify with those, the light, when the light comes on, they scatter, but that doesn't mean that they left, you know? And I think that that's um, uh, another difficult part of the season that we're, we're heading into. People are like, the light is on, the light is on, but we still got things to weed out. There's still work to do and we still got to call things into the light. Um, because it doesn't change just because the president has changed. And even the idea, you had touched on this slightly, even the idea of toxic positivity, like it's all good. We're good. We're good. Yes. And that's something that I even very recently spoke to was the idea of conscious optimism instead of toxic positivity, Mm -hmm. because with conscious optimism, you're hopeful for what's to come, but you're mindful that there's still work to do. So you hold those things in balance. Whereas toxic positivity, it's like, what work? The light is coming. All darkness is driven out. There's nothing else to do. And it's it's like, well, there is much still to do because we have to balance that hope and that mindfulness, that conscious optimism. And I hope that more people want to lean into that because we, we have to. <clears throat> yeah. And you know, that's like, Conscious optimism is something that I think that I don't see enough of. And we all know that, you know, the news mainstream media, as we've seen it, mainstream media really likes to fear monger no matter what side you're on, right? Let's just, let me just throw it out that no matter what side you're on, both sides like to fear monger. And um, my stepfather is a, is a Democrat. I've talked about him a lot in this episode, but that's because he's right here and, you know, he's like an easy reference, but um, um, my stepfather is here and he watches CNN a lot. I, to be honest with you, rarely watch news unless it's like CNBC. Like if it's something I really got to watch, I'll put on CNBC, but, um, he watches CNN a lot and it's just fear mongering. And ever since the inauguration, it's been like, oh, well, this is going to happen and this is going to happen. And these plans are an act and, this many millions of doses are going to be out within the first mm-hmm. hundred days of this presidency. And I'm like, you know, I just, it's just, I can't get with it. I, I'm, I'm having difficulty, although I'm very um, celebratory over yeah. the inauguration. Mm. I am having an extremely difficult time being celebratory about hardly anything else. And mm. I think I think it's very difficult for me to see people who I thought, you know, were were doing this work, I think, to to also be to also choose um, choose toxic positivity. Does that make sense? Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it does. It does. It does. And I think it plays into this idea, you know, of in some sense, reimagining this language of hope. I think I think for so long this this language of hope has served in some sense as an as a grand idea that you know things are going to get better things that that things are you know in some sense you know things are just you know things are are always progressing 
Uh, but the reality is that, you know, I, I'll never forget reading this, 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 this line, um, you know, th this line from uh, Jeffrey Stout in his book, Democracy uh, in Tradition, I think. And it was, there's the first line of the book. It says, the solidarity of an aggrieved people is a dangerous thing. Wow. Like the solidarity of an aggrieved people. And I think about this idea of fear. And the way that fear just in some sense plays into false hopes that like we we believe that like we believe that, you know, whoever comes along, you know, in our life, whether it be through faith or whether it be through politics, that they will finally save us from our, from the things that we were told to be afraid of. So I want to read something real quick. Toni Morrison she writes in a brilliant essay in The Nation entitled, No Place for Self-Pity, No Room for Fear. And I wanna, I wanna read just this quote from her and I would love to hear what are you thinking, Danny, as you hear Toni Morrison speaking to you and speaking to us. This is what Toni Morrison writes. She says, this is precisely the time when artists go to work. There's no time for despair, no place for self-pity, no need for silence, no room for fear. We speak, we write, we do language. That is how civilizations heal. I know the world is bruised and, ble and bleeding. And though it is important not to no ignore its pain, it is critical also to refuse to succumb to its malevolence. Like failure, chaos contains information that can lead to knowledge even wisdom like art um <laughs> so danny what are you thinking as you hear tony morrison speaking to you and to us i had never heard this before until you presented it and it is one of the most beautiful things i've heard but also you can tell that she's speaking from experience because this is exactly the process because even when i'm thinking about how I've had to create in the past, there will be, I joke about this with my team sometimes, there will be some horrific thing that happens in the world, right? Or in our country. And we are all like, what is happening? There is grief, there is pain, there is despair. And I feel it all just as much as everyone else does. But it is in all of that chaos that somehow I'm able to get within myself and figure out I'm hearing what's going on in the world around me. I'm hearing what people are saying to each other. What do I say right now? And it's in those moments where I'm like, I don't even know like how I'm going to get out of bed that I find in the midst of the chaos, the beauty as I interpreted it. And what I'm hoping for the future is something that I feel like she's communicated in this quote. I'm hoping that, even when there is chaos, that that won't, that won't go away. But I'm hoping that in the midst of it, I'm able to create not out of a place of trauma, but out of a place of hope. Like, I don't always mm. want to be grieving so much that whatever I'm making is just, just this, this, this horrifically, like, really painful, <laughs> yet beautiful thing. I still want to touch into that. And, like, I still want to be able to create out of that but still have it be from a place of beauty and not trauma, a place of like hope and not fear 
And I love that she said that it can lead to knowledge, wisdom, like art. Like, that's just so beautiful. The world will continue to bruise and bleed, but I don't want to succumb to malevolence. I want to rise Mm -hmm. above that and be able to create from a beautiful place. Yeah, the idea of creating not from creating art, not from trauma is such a powerful thing because I think it kind of like encourages your, um, I don't want to call them, I don't want to call them supporters or like, you know. You Talk know. about it. I know where, I know where you're going. Talk yeah, about that. Yeah, yeah, um, It kind of encourages them to also feel beautiful, like, you know, amongst amongst their own trauma. I think that um, I think that watching someone heal sometimes is more powerful than it is watching someone break. Oh, and that is beautiful. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I think I think watching someone heal is far more beautiful than than watching someone break. And I think that um I think that people kind of get really into watching someone break. Yes. You know, especially with like the way social media is now and like the I guess ease of which people have access to our lives. Um it makes mm-hmm. it easy to break in private. And um, and I believe that art offers a type of healing that that really you can't you can't get anywhere else. I, I did want to say that it also reminded me of this other quote that I that I kind of hold close to me by uh, Tony Kade Bambara. She says, the role of the artist is to make the revolution irresistible. Mm. and there's so much beauty in that and it reminds me of what tony says because revolution you know comes with so much sacrifice so much bloodshed but to make it irresistible is not to say i'm making this horrible thing beautiful it's saying i'm making that the way that we're going to change the world as a result of this horrible thing beautiful Mm. i'm making it irresistible in the sense that you are enticed to join the fight against the evil that is dividing us and just and oppressing so many of us and that the power and when you think of art in that way it makes you say why wouldn't i why wouldn't i lean into the talent and the skill and the passion that i've been given and make something beautiful in the midst mm. of all this mess it's needed mm. wow. yeah it's very needed wow. and you know wow. in a sense i i like really feel like that we're living through kind of like a second renaissance <laughs> yeah I think I think we are uh, living through like a second renaissance. I mean, I think the only difference is that everyone's not located in Harlem or Paris. Correct. Honestly, <laughs> that's I think real. I I really think that that that's the only difference is that we're just not all in Harlem. I think that there are so many beautiful writers and artists and poets and you know everything else creative that is coming out of of this time um that seems very comparable you know to to the previous to the previous renaissance so it's beautiful in a way that i've studied the harlem renaissance i've studied those those artists i've studied those intelligent minds and that's so real i think this idea of living through a renaissance is in some sense Okay, on the one hand, we talked about revision, 
Mm-hmm. But there, let's take the vision off that REV and add what Renaissance gives to it and its revival. Mm. So in some sense, this idea of Renaissance and revival, even as we are revising our lives and our experiences together, is trying to revive something dead that is within us. And so there is this story in the Bible of uh, Ezekiel in the Valley of the Dry Bones, where God takes him to this Valley of the Dry Bones, and these bones are dry and dead, and there's no life there. And then Ezekiel, God asks Ezekiel, can these bones live? And then uh, Ezekiel responds to God, only you know, Lord. And then guess what God says to Ezekiel? And this thing blessed me so much. God responds to Ezekiel and says, prophesy to the bones. Mm -hmm. What's so powerful about that is saying that the revival and recovery we seek as we revise our lives and our stories are bound to us. God tells Ezekiel to prophesy to the bones. It ain't, it ain't, you know, hey, you know, I'm going to raise these bones. Yeah, I got the power. But Ezekiel is going to be the one who, who, who is used to bring life out of dead things. So I'm so interested as we think about, Danny, in closing, as we think about revival and renaissance and recovery and this idea of joy. You know, in some sense, what advice would you give people as you look at your own life, as you think about your word, as you think about art, activism, and and, and imagination? What advice would you give people who are struggling in this moment right now as we speak, who are struggling seriously with joy? Well, one thing that I would say is that It's really important to recognize that because of all that we've gone through as a collective these past couple years, we don't have to force happiness. We don't have to try to invent a sense of a sense of joy within each other, because a lot of times it's just you don't feel it there. But what I love the most about the idea of joy is that Often it's something that's outside of yourself. People often pit happiness and joy against each other. And it's, I sometimes get flack for like, why? Oh, happy Danny. Like, why not joy? And I see that even in the really hard times, happiness to me is saying every day, there is at least one moment where I can say, this brought me happiness. This brought, this made me smile. This is giving me a little push to keep going. And I live for those moments in each day where somebody can look at the world around them or look at this hard thing, find a piece of hope and pull it out of that and say, you know, in this moment right here, this is keep, this is going to keep me going. And I see joy kind of the same way in, in the sense that some people see it as more long suffering. Some people see it as more long lasting, but I would hope that people are able to look within their own lives in their own journeys and say, this is definitely very hard, but this is a small moment that I can pull out of this. This is a a slimmer of hope that I can pull out of this and say, you know, this is giving me the strength to keep going. if not just for one more day. 
And whether you call that joy or whether you call that happiness is up to you. I choose to not pit the two against each other because we could use more of both, honestly. And I would say that whatever that looks for you, like in this season, don't try to force it to look like something it's not. Lean into what it feels like for you and do your best to find that, that hope in each day. That's what I would say about joy. Mm, that's beautiful in each day. And you do like, you know, really have to take it day by day, honestly. Yeah. You do. So, Danny, we know how to get in touch with you, but how can our listeners get in touch with you? Yeah, you can find me everywhere. Uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at oh happy Danny. And you can visit the shop at ohhappydanny.com. I've got some prints if you'd like them. But yeah, find me. Yes. All right. Well, thank you for joining us. This has been another great episode of The Stories Between Us, the place where ordinary stories intersect in extraordinary ways so that one day maybe a better story can be told. I'm Modi. And I'm Stu. And we are... (laughs) 